The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Caleb Benjamin, intern at Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for November 4th, 2023. This week, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and FBI Director Christopher Wray testified in front of the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs on threats to the homeland. Senators peppered Mayorkas and Wray with questions about the southern border, fentanyl trafficking, increases in migrant crossings, and more. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from June 26th, 2018, in which Benjamin Wittes sat down with Stephanie Loiter to discuss how developments along Mexico's southern border affect the United States, who's entering Mexico, why they're doing it, why most continue on to the United States, and where the dangers lie along their journeys. I'm Matthew Kahn, and you're listening to the Lawfare Podcast, June 26th, 2018. With the media and political commentators focused on family separation at the U.S.-Mexico border, few are paying attention to how developments along Mexico's southern border affect the United States. Enter Stephanie Loiter, director of the Mexico Security Initiative at the University of Texas at Austin, who has spent the past several weeks in the field studying the flow of migrants from Central America into Mexico. On Monday afternoon, she got on the phone with Benjamin Wittes to talk about who's entering Mexico, why they're doing it, why most continue on to the United States, and where the danger lies along their journeys. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 324, Stephanie Loitert on the other southern border. So, Steph, I don't usually start uh, a conversation for a podcast with this question, but I'm going to this time. What have you been up to the last few weeks? Well, first of all, Ben, thank you so much for for having me on your podcast. Um, For the past three weeks, I have been traveling along Mexico's southern border. So while everyone's been focusing on, and rightly so, on what's been happening at the United States southern border, I've been just a little bit further south uh, in Mexico's border with Guatemala, checking out uh, kind of what happens when Central Americans begin their journey rather than end it. So Mexico's southern border, before we get to uh, what you were doing there and what you saw, let's just talk a little bit about that region. Um, give us a, a description a, a little bit about what kind of region of the country that is. And it, you know, when people think about Mexico, they're not thinking about that area of Mexico. So what's it like and, and who lives there and who's passing through? So that's a great question. And similar to the U.S.'s, the United States southern border, there is no one description that's going to sum up the entire length. Um, it's about a 700-mile border in total. Um, and if you're moving from the Gulf Coast, so that's the, the border with Belize, um, that region looks very different. But, and then by the time you get to the center of the, the border with Guatemala, and then it goes all the way to the Pacific coast. Um, to take a step back, Mexico's southern region in general tends to be the poorest part of the country. Um, up by the United States, that's more of the, or in the center of the country, and up by the U.S., it's more the industrial regions. Um, and then down by the south, it's less developed. Uh, there's larger indigenous communities. It has a history of opposition against the government. So it, it's a very, it looks very different, both in indicators and visually, um, than other parts of Mexico. Now, the border itself 
uh, starts at up by Belize and, and into Guatemala in, that, in the Gulf Coast, it starts with kind of a thick jungle. And there's a lot of national parks on both sides in Guatemala and across the border in Mexico. And it's, it, it really is jungle jungle in the sense of there's jaguars, uh, there's spider monkeys, howler monkeys, um, it really, really intense mosquitoes. Uh, it really is a kind of untouched uh, jungle area. Now, when you get a little further, I guess it's moving south along the border towards the Pacific, um, the jungle kind of gives way to more farmland, uh, ranching. I was really surprised. I stopped by this town, Benemerito de las Americas, which is right on the border with Guatemala, and they were selling cowboy hats and cowboy boots right in the store, uh, right along the border. And that's not what I was expecting in southern Mexico. I would have thought that would be more up towards the north and the big ranch lands. Um, and then you continue down a little further, and the ranch lands kind of give way, and you have these huge mountains, and it's kind of the highlands of Chiapas. And then it kind of gives way back down into jungle near the Pacific. So that's geographically kind of what you're looking at. Um, in terms of migration, uh, it's, it is the launching point for pretty much every Central American going north. There are uh, four different major crossing areas, I would say, and they're located on those different kind of points throughout uh, or kind of along the border. Um, some of them are water borders where people cross in boats or rafts, and some of them are land borders where people hike around the checkpoint. And, and what, what took you down there? So tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and how you came to be down in this region uh, uh, for the last few weeks. It is a bit random. Um, so I am currently working as the director of the Mexico Security Initiative at the Strauss Center at the University of Texas at Austin. And as part of my responsibilities, I teach a class at the LBJ School related to Central American migration through Mexico and Mexico's migratory policy. Now, I've spent some time on different parts of Mexico's southern border, both in Tenosique, which is kind of up near that more, more the Gulf Coast side of things, and then down in Tapachula, which is more on the Pacific side. But I'd never been in the space in between. Um, and so this trip was uh, really just out of curiosity uh, and kind of better understanding that middle space between those two more emblematic cities. Um, and I'm particularly drawn to the border uh, to understand, first of all, kind of the initial space where migrants cross into Mexico, but also because it's been uh, top of the Trump administration's focus right now. It, they've definitely embraced to some extent the idea of perimeter security and pushing the U.S. border out to Mexico's southern border and using the southern border as a space to stop either drugs or regular migrants from going north. So given the focus that we've seen in previous administrations and in this current administration, I really wanted to get down there to understand a little bit more of the dynamics that are happening, not just in the cities kind of on either side of the border, but really in that middle zone uh, where there's less big cities and there's less people passing through. So. The U.S. southern border, we have this image of it as, you know, there's parts of it that are, you know, pretty heavily uh, uh, patrolled, and there's parts of it that, you know, people uh, wander across. Mm -hmm. uh, how policed is the Mexican southern border? To kind of give you a, a sense, I was thinking of writing dispatches, and one of the dispatches uh, that I wanted to write was going to be titled, What Border? Uh, because there is really no border uh, in certain areas. And that gives you a sense of the policing. Um, that's not, it's not really where Mexico puts its focus often is on that, the actual border line. Mexico focuses on stopping people once they're a little further into the country. And to give a sense of kind of just what I mean by there not being a border, um, this, not this past trip, but the previous trip, I, went down to a border entry point, El Cebo, which is about, about an hour from Tenosique, Tabasco. And I crossed over there because I'd heard that that was where a lot of the people who were arriving in Tenosique were arriving first. And you know, I, I walked in, I, I had a beer, uh, some food, I was watching people pass by. And as I was leaving, uh, there were some little kids and they asked me, hey, do you want us to cross you? 
And I said, hmm, cross me into Mexico. And they said, yeah. I said, well, how much are you charging? And they said, 20 pesos. And that's about, you know, right now that's about a dollar. And the, the younger kid who was maybe, I don't know, seven or eight years old said, I, I'll cross you for 10 pesos, so 50 cents. So I said, all right. So I ended up following these three little kids, you know, kind of down this dirt path that's maybe 50 meters or, or less from the actual port of entry. Um, and as we're kind of walking through, we're in, there's not, we're in a clearing, like there's trees on either side, but the people at the port of entry could see us and I could see them. And I don't exactly look like I am from the area. I don't really blend in. Um, so as I was walking, I, I could tell if anyone was down the street, they would know that I'm crossing illegally into Mexico. But no one did anything. And, and kind of on the contrary, there was someone sitting outside of the Guatemala customs office and they, they just waved at me as I was walking kind of in this illegal path into Mexico. So that's, that's when you're looking at the physical border. It really is quite easy to go back and forth. However, that's kind of by design in the sense of they're not looking to build a wall on that part of the border. Where they focus all their attention is in the 10, 30, 100 miles into the country where there are, are roadblocks and checkpoints and kind of internal ports of entry along the main roads going north. And that's where they stop people, check your, your um, documents. And, and really, for migrants, that's where they apprehend most of them. And so I take it the theory here is that if you build checkpoints along the border itself, uh, people will just go around them. But eventually, if people are really heading north, everyone's got to use the roads. Yes. And also because it really is back to that, the description of the physical land, this is really dense jungle. And it would be really hard to build uh, a wall through a lot of this jungle. And, and also so much of it is just is along a river and the river is the dividing line between the two countries. So putting up physical barriers uh, in these rivers where there's jungles on both sides, it, it would become very difficult, very costly. Um, I think the Mexican authorities, and they've also been developing a security strategy with U.S. authorities, they've decided that for the resources, given the layout, creating these kind of internal checkpoints moving north is really a much more efficient way of stopping people. And they do stop quite a few people. So the people who are coming through, they are not, according to the statistics that you see, mostly Guatemalans, right? So this is not the origin point of the migratory uh, path that people are taking. So walk us through who the people are who were coming across this border and where they're coming from. And, you know, before they now have a long trek uh, up the length of Mexico to the U.S. southern border, what have they already been through uh, journey-wise? So the journey through Mexico is long, arduous, intense, and it does begin even before they get to Mexico. If you are Honduran or El Salvador, even to get to the Mexico-Guatemala border, you do have to traverse the length of Guatemala. Um, that tends to be comparatively uh, easier. It's all relative. And how are they doing that? Is that is is, is that a, uh, a a are they hitching rides? Are they traveling by train? Are they walking? They're taking buses normally. So they buy bus tickets and they'll cross through the country on buses. And once they get to the these kind of ports, I guess you would you would call them crossing points. Actually, it would be better. Uh, once they get to a crossing point, they dismount the bus. Um, I saw this when I was at La Tecnica, which is uh, it's a point kind of in a little further south from El Cebo and Tenosique. On the Mexico side, it's a small town called Frontera Corozal. And in that crossing point, the river is the dividing line. If you are in La Tecnica at you know, 8.45 a.m., you can be eating breakfast. And by 9 a.m., the first bus arrives and 30 Central Americans, most of them in that specific route, are coming from Honduras. They arrive at the, at the crossing point on a bus. They walk down the main street. They might already have guides who have kind of negotiated everything for them, and then they're just following them. They might be paying their way in chunks. And so at that point, they might be looking to hire a, 
a local guide to cross them uh, to the other side of the river and perhaps get them a taxi up to Palenque, which would be the next big city on the route. Um, so in that, and that's just one crossing point. But getting through Guatemala, it's mostly on buses. Then they have to cross the land border or river border into Mexico. And from there, there are a multitude of ways that they're crossing through Mexico. Everything from trailers, being inside trailers, uh, going north to buses, to private cars. Um, some parts are in taxis. Some of them, if they have no money, ride the train. Some of them who have a lot of money might take planes to the border. So there really is uh, a range of different modes of transportation that they would take after they then cross into Mexico. But mostly to get there, it's buses. And I assume the Guatemalan authorities sort of have no dog in this fight, right? It's, you know, if if people from El Salvador or Honduras want to traverse Guatemala to get to Mexico, to get to the United States, uh, it's hard to imagine why the Guatemalans would have the biggest problem with that. Is that right? You know, historically, they have undertaken campaigns to take people who are amassing on the Guatemala side of the Mexico-Guatemala border and either deport them back or even send them back to their small towns in Guatemala. Um, but by and large, getting through Guatemala is a lot easier than any other part of the journey. I mean, really, the journey for these people starts when they reach the Guatemala-Mexico border and then are heading north. That's when it really, it really begins to get difficult because the Mexico the Mexican National Migration Institute is uh, far more better funded, organized, uh, with more people, and it's just, uh, it becomes a lot more treacherous with a lot more regulation on the movement of these people. And why, uh, before we get to who these people are, which is obviously a seriously contested uh, matter in the United States, uh, why for a lot of them is Mexico not the destination? After all, I mean, if you're trying to escape from uh, a Salvadoran gang, Mexico City is not a terrible place for that. Um, why, why the additional burden uh, of getting across the Mexico-US border, which is a much more difficult undertaking not to mention getting to it, than uh, simply considering you're done once you've crossed the Guatemala-Mexico border? That's a question that comes up a lot. And there's a lot of different angles to the answer. And the first one to take the example you gave about uh, fleeing an, a Salvadoran gang and they, they get to Mexico and how Mexico City might be a better uh, city to reside in. And I would point out first uh, that to seek asylum in Mexico, it's through the government agency Comar. And Comar only has uh, a few offices around the country. It actually only has three full offices, one in Tapachula, which is in Chiapas, one in Veracruz, and one in Mexico City. And there's a, a smaller one in uh, Tenosique, but it's not fully functional. So in Tapachula, that's the only fully functional Comar office. This is with the authority that grants refugee status. And so uh, that's along the border, along the Mexico-Guatemala border. So you have Salvadorans who are arriving uh, and they get to Tapachula. It's the first city that they reach in, in Mexico and they look to get refugee status. And at that point, you know, it's right now, it should only take, um, I think it's can't remember the exact amount, but it's a pretty short time frame. I think it might be three months at its maximum length is how long the asylum process should take in Mexico. But given the earthquake that destroyed the building in Mexico City and made it unusable, given the, the flat budget resources for the organization with increasing asylum applications, right now you're looking at months and months and months, um, six months, nine months, people are saying even a year to get your application even looked at. Now, while you're waiting during that time period, you're in Tapachula, which has a presence of those very gangs that you're fleeing. So Barrio 18, I don't know if they actually have a stronghold. MS-13 certainly has a presence in that city. Um, Barrio 18 might be more on the Tenosique, on the kind of the other coast, controlling some of those areas. And so the very gangs that you were looking to escape are now in that place in southern Mexico where you're now residing. So that's just answering that, that one small part. 
The majority of people would prefer to be in the United States because they have a family member already there. So if you are in some type of desperate situation, whether you uh, are very poor or you're in an abusive relationship or the gangs are coming after you, and we can talk about all those reasons uh, later, and you want to flee somewhere, do you want to flee to a new country where you don't know anyone? Or do you want to flee to a place where your mother lives or where your aunt lives or where your cousin lives and you can go stay with them? And to restart in another country where you already have that built-in network, where you already have a support system, where you have someone who will receive you in their house, that is the, one of the big ties. And these people are already living in the United States because migration from Central America has been happening for the last three decades. And so many, many people, if not most people in El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala have some family member, even distant ones, who are already living in the U.S., who they can go stay with. Now, the last reason that I would say is kind of the general reason, and this was told to me by someone who worked in the Mexico City government, specifically on refugee resettlement programs, is that would you rather be poor and restarting your life in Mexico, or would you rather be poor and restarting your life in the United States? And he meant it, and it sounds crass when you say it, but when you look at the minimum wage in Mexico, which a lot of these people, when they're restarting out and they have to start their lives from scratch again, the minimum wage in Mexico is extremely low. And if you look at the minimum wage in many states in the United States, it's much higher. So if you have the choice of seeking asylum in Mexico and seeking asylum in the United States, you have family members, you have the, the option of working a, a kind of low-skilled job or even a medium to high-skilled job, and the wages are higher, it's hard to imagine why you would choose to stay in Mexico if you have the two options. So let's talk about the population that is coming across that, that border. You spent a few weeks down there on this trip. You've spent time down there before. Uh, what are the broad themes of these, uh, of these migratory populations? Uh, who are they? There is no one, one definition of who migrants are. And the way I try to usually describe it, and when I spend time at migrant shelters, I'm always reminded, we like to paint these pictures of they're all gang members, they're all MS-13, or they're all women and children fleeing, and they're all in this highly vulnerable state. And if you took migrants, the average population in a migrant shelter looks very similar to if you took the average population out of a neighborhood. There are young migrants, there are old migrants, there are elderly migrants, there are LGBT migrants, there are women, there are tough women, there are people who are at more high-risk situations. You get everything because ultimately these are just people. Now, why are they all choosing to leave? There are many, many different reasons. There's some large themes that come out, but again, every migrant is going to have their own uh, specific set of reasons that came together to push them to make this decision. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed 
my data from 56 separate data brokers that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Before you go on on that, though, I want to mm-hmm. I wanna push you a little bit on that because, mm-hmm. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, given the arduousness of the journey, mm-hmm. you've either got to have a, a gigantic pull or a major push. And I assume in most cases, we're talking more about push than we are about pull. That is, if you're reasonably comfortable in San Salvador and, you know, yeah, there's better economic opportunities in Cleveland, but, you know, I, I, the, that, you no, that delta is not so extreme that you're going to uh, make this trip uh, along the length of Mexico under these circumstances. Like, let's start with the people who are best off. Uh, who are they? By best off, I mean, you mean in terms of the amount of money that they have? Well, I mean, in terms of the the the, the comparative absence of duress forcing them to make this particular journey. There is no best off. If you're making this journey, as you said, you have, I like to say, some form of desperation. It might be a desperation because of a security situation. Uh, it might be a, a desperation because 
Um, there's been a drought for the past three years and your, your crops have died for all three years and now you don't have any food. And the money that you're making through your outside work isn't cutting it. So you're hungry. So that's a form of desperation that we wrap up into economic migrants. Um, you might be in an abusive relationship and you're sick of it and you're done. And here's your cousin in the U.S. saying, leave him and come with me and start a different life. There is always some form of desperation. We only provide legal protections to those who have specific desperate kind of circumstances who are fleeing gangs or in the past before it was reversed or fleeing uh, domestic violence. But to make this journey, to leave your home, to leave your community, uh, you usually have to have some, something extremely difficult in your regular daily life circumstances um, or else you wouldn't, you wouldn't take the risk. It would, be, it would feel too high. So when you say that when you go to a migrant shelter and look at the population, it looks like a neighborhood, you don't mean it looks like the variety of, of human circumstances that you find in a neighborhood. You mean that it looks like all the people in a neighborhood who would be desperate enough for one reason or another uh, to make a trip like this. Yes. I mean that there's every age, there's every personality type, there's every, you know, everything is there, every sexual orientation. It's just a cross-section of humanity who, for whatever reason, ended up in, in these different desperate circumstances. But that's what I mean as my starting point, is that there is no one definition. There are so many different types of people who make this, this journey. And I think often that gets lost in the way that we cover migration, where we're only looking at young men who are tattooed in their MS-13, or we're only looking at um, small toddlers. And something that always strikes me, actually, is that when I go down to Mexico and I'm traveling the routes, there's a lot of older men. There's elderly men. There's elderly women who are making this journey. And that is a, a demographic that you never hear. You never see the people who are over 60 years old who are fleeing something. Um, or who are trying to reunite with their family members. Um, so there's, I just mean it in that sense that there's just every different age group is represented and every different background of that sense. Now, there are some general themes throughout. Um, if you're coming from El Salvador, it's very likely that you are fleeing either MS-13 or Barrio Diosgacho. It is, these gangs have, uh, they control kind of like a patchwork quilt different neighborhoods across many of the, the cities in the country. Um, they control who enters. They, if you are from one neighborhood and you try to go to uh, another neighborhood controlled by the other gang, you risk uh, very severe consequences, including being killed. They really control the life in these areas and they make their money through extortion. That means they come around, they ask you for uh, a certain tax every um, every two weeks or every month. And if you don't pay that, the consequence is very likely death, either to you or a family member. So that is that is very much the situation in El Salvador. In Honduras and in Guatemala, you see that replicated in different parts of the country, specifically in the cities, in Tegucigalpa, San Pedro Sula, in Honduras, Guatemala City. Um, but in those countries, there's also other types of, of people coming. In Honduras and certain parts of Guatemala, specifically along the Gulf Coast, you see people who are actually fleeing narcos, people who are fleeing violence from the groups that are controlling the drug routes that move up from, of cocaine, that move from South America to Honduras, Guatemala, and then go up through Mexico. Let me stop you there and just ask you to clarify the difference between somebody fleeing a gang and somebody fleeing a narco. Just walk us through that difference for a moment. Sure. So as criminal groups, they're structured very differently. Um, and groups like MS-13 or Barrio de Siocho, they have a different model in that they tend to control territory. And they, they're not controlling territory to tax illicit goods moving through, but rather to extort the local communities who are living in that territory. And Barrio de Siocho and MS-13, these two groups, they fight one another for control of this territory in different cities or towns. Now, there are other illicit groups, and this is a much smaller percentage of the total number of migrants, but I mention it just to show the diversity of reasons. Um, but in these areas along the Gulf Coast, 
there are areas where cocaine is coming in from South America to reach the United States, and that's one of the routes. And these groups are not the gangs, they're other groups, uh, and they control the territory and either move the drugs north, um, or later on it would be groups that would pack the, the goods moving through, the drugs moving through. So they look different, often they're old families, uh, they're kind of family-based organized crime groups, versus, again, MS-13 or Barrio de Siocho, which tend to control more marginalized neighborhoods, similar to the gangs that you might think of in in Chicago or Los Angeles, that's more of the style of MS-13 Barrio Dieciocho. These other groups are uh, have a different model of moving goods north rather than just controlling territory. Gotcha. So, okay, so you've got your large group of people, particularly from El Salvador, who are fleeing gangs. The gangs. You've mm-hmm. got a smaller group of people who are fleeing uh, narco-trafficking family mm-hmm. organizations. What are the other big themes? LGBT migrants is also a big group of people that often gets uh, kind of swept away or people don't focus on them as much. Recently, I was reminded of this while traveling along the border. I stopped in a migrant shelter um, in one of the southern towns, and I was asking about the reasons that they were focusing actually on on Guatemalans in that there's a lot of Guatemalan migrants passing to that shelter. And I asked them, you know, what are the reasons that the unaccompanied children arriving here that, that they are coming? And the shelter director said, well, to be honest, most of them uh, that we've been seeing recently are LGBT migrants who face danger in their home cities. Usually it's the larger cities, uh, like Guatemala City. And they've heard or, that if they come to Mexico and they seek safety, because many of them do stay in Mexico, or if they go to the U.S., they might be able to seek safety. Um, so there, she told me one story of a, a father with his son and how they arrived there. And the shelter director asked them, so why are the two of you coming? What are you? Where are you going? And it took a while, but finally the father said, well, my son came out as gay and we're afraid that he's going to be killed if we stay. So I'm taking him uh, north so that he, he doesn't get killed or hurt. Um, and so it was a father taking his, his son, who had come out as gay, um, out of the country um, to try to find safety. So that's another group that is present, and that's another series of reasons for why people decide to leave. And actually, the La Setente Dos shelter in Tenosique has a special wing that's dedicated just to LGBT migrants um, and to housing them and providing them the services, uh, the particular services for that population. Um, so that's that's another reason. And then uh, I'll toss in a, a couple more. Another big one, especially from Honduras, is domestic violence. There's violence against women by partners, um, by gang members, by family members, is a reoccurring and I would say even systemic challenge across many parts of the population in Central America. And the responses by the authorities are often inadequate. The resources these women can get are often inadequate. Um, and so often when you go to places, detention centers in here in Texas, and you're helping to provide, for example, legal services, and you're hearing the stories, many women are escaping um, some type of domestic violence. And they'll roll their sleeves up and they'll show you the scars of where they were hit with things or um, sometimes they still have bruises on their body because they just left recently. Um, so that's, it's pretty shocking. It's pretty horrible, but it certainly is another driving force. And I think that often when you see Guatemalan women and children in these that are seeking detention, that's often the reason that they, they give is that they're, they're fleeing some type of family or partner violence. And to what extent is the domestic violence population among the migrants related to the gang uh, fleeing population. I mean, I'm I know that one of the things that the gangs do is they, you know, impress uh, young women and girls into sort of functioning as quote girlfriends unquote uh, for gang members, and I assume that that. Those relationships must produce a lot of domestic violence. Does that account for a substantial proportion of the domestic violence cases, or is 
a lot of it just kind of garden variety, day-to-day domestic violence that, you know, among non-gang members in the societies. I would say a lot of it is related, as you say, to the gangs. And that's actually what makes it often so difficult for these young women to escape. I mean, some of them are brought in as as girlfriends, they're recruited as girlfriends, and actually, um, kind of tragically, that takes a lot of physical toll on the women, as you can imagine. And I, during the trip through this recent trip, I that same shelter director was telling me about the women they receive who escape from the gangs um, after being recruited as girlfriends. And she said they're they're often young women, but they look 10 or 20 years older than they actually are just because of the hardships that they've lived during that experience. So that's that's one type. There are other uh, other Salvadoran or Honduran women who often have a, you know, a, a teenage boyfriend or it's the father of their child from when they were, you know, in their late teens or early 20s. And at some point, this person joins a gang and then it becomes a lot more difficult for them to leave. Uh, and because these gangs are transnational, because these gangs are, are networked, um, these women complain a lot about how it, it's very difficult to move to a different city within the same or within El Salvador, for example, because these gangs have networks across many cities. And so it makes it easier for for these men to find these women once again after they flee and don't leave the country. Um, so that's that's definitely another part of it. And then the third part is kind of what you've called the garden variety. It's people who who claim that their partners don't have any uh, you know any affiliations to the gangs. Now, I I wouldn't feel comfortable ever giving kind of a breakdown because often these women, and especially I'm going off of some of the credible fear interview preps that I've done, they often feel very ashamed that if their partner was with the gangs. So I'd often ask that very question of so was this person who was abusing you, were they a member of one of these gangs? And they would say, I don't know. And so then I started asking the question of, well, did they spend time with them? Uh, were they friends with them? Did they own weapons? What did they do for a living? And then it kind of slowly comes out there of like, well, he was friends with the gangs and he had weapons and he spent a lot of time with them. And, you know, it, it comes out that there probably was a connection, but these women feel shame in in kind of coming out or they think it'll be brought against that they say that they were in a relationship or that the person abusing them uh, was a member of one of these gangs. But I do think kind of what you mentioned about that interconnection between these these violent crimes against women and uh, women fleeing is definitely related a large part, especially in El Salvador and and somewhat in Honduras, um, to the gangs. So broad broad groups, you've identified a bunch. Um, <laughs> Do you have a sense, I mean, even in rough terms, of what the distribution is among the migrant population between these groups? That would be tough. Um, I think, and there's actually one last category to make it, you know, to add even more complexity, and that's uh, people who we categorize as economic migrants. And I would say, you know, really for, for most migrants, poverty is a base. Uh, poverty is a, is a foundation and so are weak institutions. Because if you have no money and you don't have any recourse where you live, then anytime there's an external event, um, in this case, an abusive partner or gang violence, or for example, in the case of uh, economic migrants, a flood or a drought or a natural disaster, if you don't have money and you don't have strong institutions, you have no way of, of dealing with that. And so you're often left and you have it, with the decision to move uh, to another city, to a larger town or internationally, because you no longer can stay where you are. So that, that last uh, group, I would say, in the economic migrants uh, are those people who don't have a violent threat, um, but are, are usually leaving for some other reason related to um, improving their economic situation. Now, in that specifically, one of the areas that I'm most interested in currently is understanding how that ties in to climate change, specifically uh, droughts and floods, and how uh, these, how more unpredictable and extreme weather patterns, especially in Guatemala, are uh, making it more difficult for small farmers to grow their crops, and how that's affecting 
their domestic and international migration. Because you, you are already seeing that there are people who are leaving, who are saying uh, the rains didn't come on time for several years and we couldn't stay where we were. But when you first ask them, they'll say, you know, economic migrant looking for a job. But the real reason is that the climate changed where they were living. Um, so there's, I, I don't want to call them climate refugees yet, but there does seem to be something there uh, for certain populations in Western Honduras and in Guatemala, where the weather does seem to be changing and it does seem to be having an effect on these populations. Whether they're leaving in large numbers to the United States is a different question. But even so, we're not thinking about it in the right lens because we're just labeling them all as economic migrants and deporting them back. Um, so there's, there's definitely some, some interesting things happening there as well. So to get back to the balance between these groups, I, I understanding mm -hmm. that, that any answer to that question is very rough. Uh, yeah. How should we think about that? I think you should think that, again, poverty and institutional weakness are the underlying factors of migration. If people had ability to uh, handle these claims you know, through a functioning judicial system or through law enforcement, if they had more resources to be able to ride out unpredictable weather, they wouldn't need to migrate. Um, so that really is the foundation. So almost everyone migrating has those factors as a as a base, more or less one of them, some to greater degrees than others. I do think you should think about it country by country. Uh, in El Salvador, one time I kind of jotted down percentages of the people who were coming from each country and the reasons they were giving me. And certainly when you look at the data in terms of mapping hometowns, people in El Salvador and Honduras are largely, not exclusively, but largely coming from big cities. So these are you know, the big urban areas. And when you look at Guatemala, most people are actually coming from smaller towns and more rural areas. Um, so I think that gives a sense of, of the different dynamics at play. And I don't think you could, I, I don't think I feel comfortable giving you kind of a breakdown of percentages. One, because it, it's very difficult to tell. And two, because it, they're all in flux. I think there's a lot of societal violence and there's a lot of poverty. And they're playing out in different ways across different people's lives at different points in time. Um, so I think trying to kind of narrow it down is, is difficult, but all these factors come together um, to create what we're seeing, which is this kind of uh, large-scale outward migration, large-scale for the region, not in general, uh, right now of, of the Central American population heading north. Once they get past this border and they get past the checkpoints a few miles north, that's sort of where the journey begins, right? How much time have you spent along the route? Uh, obviously not on this particular trip, uh, but is that, a, is that an area where you've spent time and do you uh, mean to spend time on it in the future? I have spent time along different points of the route. There is no one route. Um, even people taking the train, the train routes might come together in certain points, but they branch out. So there's a Gulf route, there's a Central Mexico route, there's a Pacific route. If you're taking buses, your routes are just the highways. There's certainly a multitude of routes. And I've spent time across various cities along the northern border, more in the central, um, particularly outside Mexico City, also in the shelters in Mexico City, in Guadalajara, um, up the Tabasco coast, down through Chiapas and Oaxaca. So I've spent time in different parts. There's also areas where I haven't spent much time given some of the security concerns or, or because I haven't had the opportunity yet. For migrants, the journey does begin once they cross the border. I would say it begins even before they get to the checkpoints. So for many migrants, as soon as they cross the actual southern border, to get to that first city, Tapachula, Tenosique, um, Palenque, if they don't have money, they have to walk. And that's from La Tecnica to Palenque, which is where I was, between that where they cross in that first city. It's a six-day walk. It's 100 miles. Um, and that's in right now, it's, you know, 100 degrees, humid jungle, you know, it's jungle heat. So it's even getting to that very first place is a journey in itself. From there going north, depending on, you know, again, if they don't have money and they take the train or if they have money to take buses, they're going to hit obstacles at every point along the way. 
whether it's Mexican authorities asking for uh, their own tax to let them pass, whether it's paying the tax to the larger criminal organizations that control the northern border, uh, where they have to pay that in order to pass safely. Just the actual crossing, um, if you're in a trailer and you're going north in a trailer along a main highway, every day you're stuck in a trailer with lots of other people. You might, you know, you can't go out to go to the bathroom. They're not giving you food or water. Um, so there's, there's a lot of hardship that people, people endure, even if they're not taking the train or walking. Um, but really it's, you can't really do the journey without facing danger and, and hardship at many points, starting as soon as you cross the border and sometimes even before that while you're in Guatemala and all the way up and not just actually to the U.S. border. That's where we're focusing. But most migrants die in the whole journey once they're in U.S. territory. They die hiking through the Arizona desert or through the, around the checkpoints in Texas. Um, and they in Texas, it's on private land and they have to try to circumvent them. And in Arizona, it's just walking kind of straight through the desert for nine days. Um, and that's that's really actually those are the most dangerous points. So it, it starts, you know, all the way when they leave their homes and it doesn't end until until they finally reach that that ultimate destination. Stephanie Loiter, thanks for all your uh, amazing reporting on this. And thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Stephanie for coming on the show. If you haven't yet, please share us with your friends and followers on Facebook or Twitter, and give us a rating and review wherever you found us. Our audio editor is Jen Patya Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Until next time, thanks for listening. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.